Let's turn to 1 Thessalonians 1. And since last time, together in the afternoon, we introduced Paul's epistles to the Thessalonians, now we are beginning 1 Thessalonians. I hope you recall at least the basics of uh, the last time we were talking about First and Second Thessalonians, particularly the fact that this church had been planted by the Apostle Paul in his second missionary journey, but he had been forced out of town well before he had meant to leave. Uh, been forced out by persecution, and apparently there was great pressure still upon these new Christians in Thessalonica, some of them Jews or God-fearing Gentiles, but most of them previously pagan Gentiles. There was great pressure on them from all sides um, against their faith, their newfound faith. And Paul's writing, uh, along with his companions Silas or Silvanus and Timothy, he is writing to encourage them to be steadfast in their faith. And he's writing having himself been encouraged because he's heard back um, as he sent some of his co-workers to check on them. He's heard back from them that there's still a church there, that they're pressing forward, um, and that uh, God is at work, though Satan has been trying to hinder the work. So let's start just reading in verse 1, and we'll read through verse 7. We could have I could have taken the whole chapter, verses 1 through 10, in one chunk, but I think there's some special things right at the end that I wanted to leave for another time. So we'll read verses 1 through 7. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, and labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example or a pattern or a mold to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. Well, first of all, there's this introductory greeting, and uh, it's very typical of Paul's letters, whereas many letters of that day might open with... Um, with Kyrain, a, a, just a general word of greeting, Paul likes to open with grace to you and peace. Uh, specifically, a Christian greeting that's not just a pious thing to say, but he is, he is acknowledging these as fellow believers upon whom God's grace and peace rest. And it is also, um, you might say, a blessing, almost a prayer, that grace and peace will be upon them from God and his son, Jesus Christ. And Paul, of course, here mentions his co-laborers, Silvanus and Timothy, uh, that they are very much one in sentiment with Paul as he's writing this letter. 
later on it switches sometimes very specifically to first person singular i paul and so it's ultimately a letter from paul himself but he is including he's also listing sylvanus and timothy that the letter in one sense is from all of them to this church this is the church the ecclesia of the thessalonians it's a it's a called out assembly by god's grace this is the word used in the old testament of the sometimes of often of the congregation the kahal of israel called together by god but now there's a new covenant israel there is a new covenant assembly that has been brought together in god the father and the lord jesus christ and these are god's true people no matter what the hostile synagogue in town may say no matter what their pagan neighbors may say they are safe in god the father and the lord jesus christ and they are his special people and thus paul can say to them grace to you and peace god's grace his unmerited favor his unmerited powerful favor and his peace of course peace being a typical especially in the old testament and in hebrew a typical uh, greeting to the people of god um but especially now in light of the cross of christ and his resurrection all the more we can say that we have peace with god and thus we have peace period grace and peace and what more do we need and of course paul will elaborate on this grace and peace here as in all his letters he does that's just an introductory greeting verse one But then, after this, he begins to develop a big idea. And I think the big idea is this. Uh, And I'm wording this uh, more for us in our application of it. Thank God for how his gospel transforms his chosen people. Thank God for how his gospel transforms his chosen people. In one sense, Paul is... um, somewhat easy to outline like what what his main thoughts are and what's and how other stuff's connected to it the way he words things he starts out saying we give thanks to god always for all of you constantly mentioning you in our prayers and then he he uh, elaborates on what he can thank god for about them and what god's been doing in them First of all, as we see this big idea where, where we are encouraged along with Paul to thank God for how his gospel transforms his elect, his chosen people. First of all, notice the perseverance it works, that the gospel works. Notice the perseverance it works in deeds from new hearts. Notice the perseverance the gospel works in deeds from new hearts. Verse 3, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So the way that the language is working there is um, we just have the, the simple of phrases here. Work of faith, labor of love, steadfastness of hope. But the idea seems to be the work that's being produced by your faith and the labor that's coming from your love. And the steadfastness that is that is um, yours because you have this hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So that the uh, the faith and the love and the hope are the sources of these of these actions and of these of the steadfastness 
Paul reinforces the Thessalonian Christians in their newfound faith by assuring them of his thankful prayers on their behalf. And when he prays for these recent converts, as he says, he assures them, he does again and again, constantly. Paul does not forget how God has transformed their lives. He takes note of the work, the actions produced by their faith. Again, putting together, you could say, Paul and James on this. Um, God saves us by faith apart from works. But faith that has no works is dead, too. And so, uh, once they had faith, it certainly did produce work. It caused them to to work and even work hard. He he uses even, you could say, a somewhat more intense word then for their labor of love. Their, Their intense toil that's produced by love. Their hard toil flowing from their newfound love. God has loved them. They've experienced his love. And now his love has uh, filled their hearts and overflowed their hearts. So now they also love others as God loves others. So I I think this is a general statement of Christian love. Love for God in response to his love for us. And that love also has ramifications for our neighbor, loving our our neighbor as ourself, of course. Loving God's people, loving those who need the gospel. And Paul notices the the steadfastness, a word for stable perseverance, endurance, you could say, in this new life of theirs. They didn't didn't, um, start out great with a lot of, doing a lot of good stuff and then just fizzle. Paul's noticing in these early months of their Christian experience, their endurance. Again, it's not that there's no problems in the church. Paul will mention things along the way that they need to learn, that they need to do better, all of this. But Paul's starting out by acknowledging, God's at work in you. I can see it. I constantly thank God for it in my prayers. Be encouraged that you're not imagining This new life in Christ, it's a real thing in your life. And as the Apostle will indicate in the next verse, all of this verifies that God has indeed lovingly chosen them to to this salvation, this new life in Christ. Because next he says, um, I won't get too far ahead of myself here, but he does say next, for we know, or knowing, brothers, Loved by God, those who have been beloved by God from the past, knowing that he has chosen you, knowing his election of you. And we'll talk about that more in a minute. It's interesting, Paul talks here about faith, love, and hope. Does that sound familiar from Paul's writings? Right? Like 1 Corinthians 13, now by these three faith. Hope and love. That's a different order. It's interesting that Paul likes to use these three terms, but often he ends with with the one that he really wants to emphasize for his audience. In Corinth, their big problem was being focused on things other than love for the brethren. (laughs) And so 1 Corinthians 13, he's exhorting them to love above all. Uh, So he says, faith, hope, love. Here, you'll see throughout... Paul's writings to these Thessalonians, 
a huge emphasis throughout these epistles is our blessed hope. The hope of Christ's return. That Christ will finish what he began in our salvation. That he'll bring it to completion. That certain hope. And of course, not hope as, as popularly, we often use it as a, just a wish. <laughs> hope in the, in the New Testament as that certainty that gives us hope. And so, the danger for the Thessalonians lay um, in losing hope in Christ and his coming because of false teaching even, and that will come out even more in Second Thessalonians. But Paul underscores, as G.K. Bill says here, endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Beale also notes that each chapter in this epistle, each chapter concludes with, the, with reference to Christ's imminent coming and related events. So at the end of each chapter, Paul keeps developing this last phrase, your steadfastness of hope. It's going to be a big theme. And there's one other place in 1 Thessalonians where the faith, love, and hope come together. Uh, look with me at that. It's 1 Thessalonians 5. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 8. And this is in the context of, of Paul talking about how the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night as far as the ungodly world is concerned. And so in a, an end times context, looking for the return of Christ, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 8, Paul writes, But since we belong to the day, that is in contrast to those who are at home in the night around us, since we belong to the day, the day that's dawning and that will fully dawn when Christ returns, let us be sober, in contrast to those who, he's, he, had, he had said, those who sleep, sleep at night, those who get drunk, get drunk at night, he's using figures of speech to talk about ungodly living. But he says, let us be sober. Having put on, here it is, end of verse 8, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Salvation in its future aspect, when Christ returns. Verse 9. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that, whether we are awake or asleep, that is, when he comes, whether we are dead or alive, we might live with him. So faith, love, and hope will show up again towards the end as, as our armor in these last days to keep us prepared for Christ's return. Interesting how Paul does that. So we've said, notice the perseverance the gospel works in deeds from new hearts. That's what Paul focuses on first. I know what God has done in you is real, first of all, because I see your work of faith, labor of love, steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And I thank God for it. Number two, notice the power the gospel brings of assurance in the Holy Spirit. I struggled how to word this. Uh, you'll see why in a minute. But notice the power it brings of assurance in the Holy Spirit. Verse 4. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. That word for translated by the ESV, conviction, 
it's um, it's a certainty that sometimes we think of conviction as uh, oh I my conscience is hurting because I I see now that I was wrong about something. That's not the only way to use that word, of course. Or we might think of someone being convicted of a crime. <laughs> um, but conviction here is the idea of certainty. I know something is true. And in that sense, assurance. Assurance of the truth of the gospel, I think is what Paul's aiming at here. When we came to town and declared the gospel to you, seemingly out of nowhere for these people, first time hearing it, our gospel did not come just in word. You didn't just hear the words without any effect. It came and he piles up terms in power. I think these terms are all describing aspects of the same thing. It came in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. So again, notice, just like the previous verses, again, Paul is using three descriptions piled on top of each other to convey what happened when the gospel came to Thessalonica. So here Paul speaks about the Holy Spirit's power demonstrated particularly in an assurance, a conviction, a certainty, because it was not natural for the Thessalonians to be convinced of the gospel when they first heard it. People don't naturally respond to the gospel with certainty that it's true. That's not the natural man. No, but it happened nonetheless as a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. Without the Spirit's work, there would have been no converts to Paul's gospel. But when the Holy Spirit did convince and convert people, it was proof positive that God had lovingly chosen them to salvation, Paul says. God gave them new hearts to receive the gospel, and those new hearts were filled with the faith, love, and hope that Paul already mentioned in verse 3. Interesting when he says, uh, let's see here, when he says in verse 4, he addresses them as brothers loved or beloved by God. That word for loved or beloved um, is a perfect participle in Greek, and the only reason that matters is that that gives the idea of a completed action in the past resulting in a present situation. So it's not just that Paul is saying God loves you right now. He's he's addressing them as people whom God has loved, in this case, from all eternity. God set his love on them in the past, and that's never going to change, is the idea. Uh, Brothers loved by God, and then he sort of restates that, you could say, how that love looked in eternity past. Their election. We know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you. We know his election of you. Now, of course, this is not the only place the scriptures teach that God's eternal choice of people enables them to believe the gospel. And that when they believe the gospel, it's proof that they were elect, right? If someone has a credible profession of faith, the credit goes to the God who chooses to save certain sinners. And he gets all the glory. Um, Again, that's one of the basic uses of the doctrine of election, to realize Uh, We didn't make ourselves to differ from others who did not believe the gospel. It wasn't us. 
It was God who had set his electing love on us in eternity past. And then he changed our hearts in, in our histories. He brought us to faith because of his electing love that he always had for us. It's interesting how a place in the book of Acts where this same point is brought out, how it occurs in a very similar situation to what the Thessalonians had, had um, experienced. Turn to Acts 13. Acts 13, and I want to show you verses 44 through 48. <clears throat> so Paul brought the gospel to Thessalonica in his second missionary journey. But before that, on his first missionary journey, he had done similar things in a town called Antioch of Pisidia. And that's what Acts 13 is talking about here. Just like in Thessalonica, Paul had started in the synagogue and then he moved to the Gentiles when the synagogue rejected the gospel. Uh, Acts 13, verse 44. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered together to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, to you Jews. Gospels for the Jew first, remember. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, and he quotes the prophet Isaiah about the Messiah, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Now look at verse 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, just like happened later in Thessalonica. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Again, indicating there was a selection, an election, an appointment by God to eternal life of certain people. And all those and only those who had been so appointed to eternal life believed. So God's redeeming purpose for these specific people was fulfilled in spite of and even because of the opposition of the Jewish leadership at that synagogue. So, uh, just reminding you of our point so far, the big idea here is that, that we ought to thank God for how his gospel transforms his chosen people. Number one, we notice the perseverance the gospel works in deeds from new hearts. Number two, we notice the power the gospel brings of assurance in the Holy Spirit, that is, assurance of the truth of the message. It sticks, and that demonstrates that God's at work in his eternal plan. And number three, notice the pattern it produces, the pattern it produces of joy through hardship. Paul says at the end of verse 5, you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And he'll expand on that more in chapter 2. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. <clears throat> and he says, you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example Again, as I said earlier, an example like, like a, a mold or like a, a, um, a cookie cutter, you could say. 
a pattern that can be reproduced. You became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. Macedonia and Achaia being the northern and southern provinces in Greece of the time. So notice the pattern the gospel produces of joy through hardship. As the gospel is passed along from the Lord through his gospel ministers to the Thessalonians and then through the Thessalonians to yet others, there's this pattern, this consistent pattern that Paul experienced, that the Thessalonians are now experiencing, and that they're encouraging others to join them in, this pattern of joy through hardship. You received the word in much affliction. Greek word is flipsis. Um, you hear that word tribulation a lot in various parts of the New Testament. That's the word. Um, and the word, we could say affliction or tribulation, it means pressure. <laughs> That's the basic idea. Under high pressure of some sort. Some sort of distress. Some sort of hardship. Paul doesn't elaborate here on all their hardships and what they were, but he says you received the word, you received the gospel in much affliction, but wonder of wonders, with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Though you were in the midst of hardship and your life was probably worse off than it ever had been, now you have joy, supernatural joy, the Holy Spirit's joy. And that shows that God's at work. Matthew 13, this reminds me of, of two very brief parables Jesus uh, that we have recorded for us from Jesus in Matthew 13, verses 44 through 46. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. There's this joy that makes someone willing to lose it all if they have to for that treasure. Um, and the next verses, still Matthew 13. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Yes, the joy is supernatural, but... Supernatural because the Spirit has supernaturally opened our eyes to reality. That the gospel is worth any suffering we have to go through. It's worth any hardship to have Jesus Christ as ours. That's what the world cannot understand unless their hearts are changed too. But it's reality. It's the truth. But about affliction, hardship, tribulation... I want to show you some other places that same word is used, translated various ways, various places, uh, in the New Testament. Acts 14, verses 21 through 22, talks about still Paul and Barnabas on their missionary travels. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations, same word, we must enter the kingdom of God. So again, they're making this general statement it's, that lets us know it's not just an unusual fluke that once in a while someone has to experience hardship 
when they come to Christ, like in Thessalonica. That wasn't abnormal for the Christian experience. Paul tells all the churches, wherever he goes, it's necessary. We must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. The road to the kingdom of God for us in its consummated form, the road to eternal life in that sense leads through many tribulations. You can't get there without going through this. So, this is the Christian life. Not just for the Thessalonians, for all Christians. But of course that should encourage us in a way because we know this isn't something strange that we're experiencing when we have hardships, especially hardships directly related to our faith in Christ. Um, Romans 5, 1 through 5, Paul says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice. Does this sound familiar? We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. There's the joy in suffering. Knowing that suffering, there's the word again, knowing that tribulation, affliction, produces endurance. And endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. There's that Paul's favorite triad again. Faith, hope, and love. The Thessalonians received the word in much tribulation with joy. And by contrast, remember that a a joy that does not sustain faith through affliction reveals that it's a false faith at work. Jesus said this parable of the soils or the sower in Matthew 13, verse 20. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet... He has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. So some people seem to respond with great joy when they first get the gospel, but then the affliction hits. And you don't see him again. And that shows that, um, tragically, at least at that point in their lives, this wasn't a work of the Holy Spirit really changing their hearts yet. They endure for a little while, but the tribulation, the the affliction, the hardship comes, or persecution, because of the word, it says, on account of, of the gospel, and immediately they fall away. And so Jesus said, Matthew 24, about this whole present age between his first and second coming, he said, Matthew 24, 9, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation, there's our word again, and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away, will apostatize, and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. The point not being that God somehow hands us salvation but leaves it up to us to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and endure. That's not Jesus' point. But those those in whom God is really at work, having given them new hearts, they will have the grace to endure the end and be saved. 
endure to the end and be saved. Revelation 7, we see this great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This is a heavenly scene of the church triumphant. And the comment that's made there about who these people are is, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. The way Paul put it for the Thessalonians was, you received the word in much tribulation. Here the expression is great tribulation. And yet the whole church triumphant passes through the tribulations of this life and they make it to the throne of God where they rejoice. That's the picture. I belabor that point a bit, but I I hope you you get this. Joy in hardship. And so, the Thessalonians became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. Uh, Next time, when we move beyond verse 7, we'll see uh, part of this was simple evangelism. The, The word of the gospel was actually going out from Thessalonica everywhere. That actually made the apostles' task easier. They didn't have Paul, of course, a little hyperbole, but he says... So we didn't really have to say anything at all. (laughs) Uh, The gospel had already gone out everywhere from you. We'll talk about that next time. But um, to those, to others who had believed and who were believing throughout Greece, that area of Europe at the time, the Thessalonians stood out as an example for all the rest of them to imitate. They saw the Thessalonians in this capital city of Macedonia, in this important hub, um, under great stress under great pressure but they didn't buckle they kept going maybe they lost their job with their employer they kept going maybe they lost family they kept going maybe they got thrown in jail they kept going and it's interesting to me that in second corinthians written a little later second corinthians 8 1 through 5 uh, this church, and probably probably Paul also, also talks about the church in Philippi, also in Macedonia, uh, they continue to serve as outstanding examples of the grace of God at work in people. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 1, Paul says to the church at Corinth, down in Achaia, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, oh, there's the word again, in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. So this church in Macedonia, along with others like Philippi, they continued to have a severe test of affliction, and yet they had such joy in the Lord that they could look beyond their own circumstances, and they actually could have compassion on the poor saints in Judea, in Jerusalem, and say, what can we do, even though we're in a tight spot, what can we do nonetheless to help them? And Paul continues to point to them as examples for the rest of the churches in Macedonia and Achaia. 
Well, again, the big idea. Thank God for how his gospel transforms his chosen people. Four applications here. In closing, uh, application number one. We must remind the brethren, fellow Christians, we must remind the brethren of the grace we see at work in them. This is a basic, it ought to be a basic Christian activity, right? We must remind our brothers and sisters of the grace we see at work in them. By the way, if we're not doing this, and we all have to get better at it, but if we're not doing it, um, we'll have no foundation to stand on in our relationship with each other. Uh, we need to have, we need to be constantly doing this. This is, this is how God um, unites us in sweet fellowship, a large way he does it. This is what Paul was doing for the Thessalonians, and this is what we have to do for each other. Pray for each other. Thank God for each other. Take note of God's work in each other and tell each other so. Not just, though this is good, I'm praying for you. Also, this is what I'm thanking God about because of you. This is what I see God doing in your life. I see you are working hard because... You trust Christ. You're working hard because you love him. I see you're sticking it out because you have hope in Christ. And these are the examples. How I see that. Paul's going to go into very specific examples of, of um, what he sees in Thessalonica later on here. Satan wants to isolate us in our afflictions and struggles and make us doubt the reality of God's grace in our hearts. Again, am I just imagining things? Am I fooling myself? But as members one of another in Christ's body, we can nourish each other, strengthen each other, reminding each other of the grace we see at work in each other. And we need to do that. We need to do that. Number two, we must see the doctrine of election as reason for assurance and joy. We must see the doctrine of election as a reason for assurance and joy. It's a wonderful thing. It is not our business, indeed it's beyond our ability, to mystically, arbitrarily determine who are God's elect, chosen from before the world began. As, you know, the famous saying that I'm, I'm sure I'm uh, not quoting perfectly from Spurgeon, if the elect had stripes painted on their backs, I'd be lifting shirt tails all the time. But we can't do that, right? Uh, there's no mystical way to see the sign on people. Oh, you're one of the elect. But when we see people receive the gospel and be transformed from the inside out, we know that God's purpose of election has accomplished that. And when we see... Uh, excuse me, when we um, when we see faith and love at work in our lives, when we see hope producing endurance in our lives, we know that God has chosen us. It's an unbiblical idea based on texts like this and like 
Peter talks about making your calling and election sure. It's an unbiblical idea to think, well, election is a reality, but we can never really be certain that we're one of the elect. Some people do take that approach, but that's unbiblical. When we see God at work in us, we know God's chosen us. This is not something we have accomplished by our natural spiritual abilities, as if we had those. If that were true, we could just as easily undo it all by our sinful weakness. Again, if we don't believe in unconditional election, it makes sense that perhaps we perhaps we obtained salvation, but then we lost it again at some point. <laughs> because then the focus is on what we did. But if this is all God's doing ultimately and his unshakable plan, then uh, it doesn't depend on us ultimately. This is God's doing, not ours, and that gives us great assurance and joy. God chose to set his love on us from the beginning of creation, and now we're seeing the results, the beginning of the results. We can be assured that this is God's unstoppable work. So I said it's a reason for assurance and stability and for joy. What a joy to have the eternal love of the Almighty God. What better thing could you have? That'll give you solid, lasting joy. If the doctrine of election causes doubt and downheartedness in someone, they're doing it wrong. And I'm afraid sometimes people view that the doctrine that way as something that just makes them uneasy about their own salvation or something. But as I said, if, if, if that's... If that's what we're getting from the doctrine of election, we're doing it wrong. It should be a reason for assurance and joy. Third application. We can only persevere in Christian toil. We can only persevere in Christian toil if we have the right fuel. Remember here how Paul spoke of their work of faith their labor of love, their steadfastness of hope. As you read about the example of the Thessalonian Christians, you may be faint-hearted rather than encouraged. You may be weak in the assurance of your genuine election and faith because you know, or at least, at least you think you know, your good works are lacking. What's the answer if you find yourself in that discouraging position? Well, the answer isn't simply to do more stuff. The answer is to cultivate the trees of faith, love, and hope, which will increasingly produce the right kind of fruit, the right kind of sustained actions. As I mentioned before, Peter, for instance, does tell us, yeah, there is some work to be done to make our calling and election sure, so grow in these qualities, Peter says. But what we're not saying is um, make your calling and election sure by persevering in a lot of good activities, getting busier somehow. We're saying cultivate faith, hope, and love. Or to change the analogy, uh, the vehicle of perseverance won't get far without the fuel of godly heart attitudes, faith, love, and hope. Plenty of people can fake godly deeds for a time. 
But without faith, love, and hope, that won't last forever. In fact, we might do outwardly good things for a time precisely because we're so self-absorbed and we want to look good. But when our adoring gaze is turned upon God in Christ, then we're filled with faith, love, and hope. And that fuels our Christian life for the long haul. We trust God enough to keep at it. We love God and imitate his love to others so that we are willing to spend and be spent to the uttermost. We have an unshakable hope, a certainty that the salvation for which God chose us and to which he's called us, he will indeed complete for us. And because of that, we persevere toward that wonderful certain event. But again, we can only persevere in Christian toil if we have the right fuel. Look to the cross of Jesus Christ. Look to his resurrection. Fix the eyes of your heart, as Paul says elsewhere, on your Savior. And faith will be the result. And it will be accompanied by love and hope. Number four and last. We can pass on contagious Christian joy even in the darkest of circumstances. The Thessalonians did it, and it wasn't because they were so great. But we can pass on contagious Christian joy, even in the darkest of circumstances. They became the pattern that was reproduced everywhere as people heard of their joy and affliction. We can do the same thing. We can have contagious Christian joy, no matter what the circumstances are. Makes me think of 1 Peter 1, verses 3 through 9. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. That is, this is an inheritance no one's going to touch. It's safe. It's secure. Who uh, For you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though, now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. And rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So clear your gaze of that which obscures your joy. And this takes much effort. It does. But clear your gaze of that which obscures your joy. Look past your changing circumstances to your certain hope. And to the person whom you now trust and love, Jesus Christ. When you do that, others will see your joy and they'll have their gaze drawn to what's captured your attention. They'll look at what you're looking at. That's how Christian fellowship ought to work and does work. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And it's not just a trite sentiment. 
and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. That's how this works. Let's pray together, shall we? Thank you, Father, for your help this afternoon. We ask that we would chew on these things and uh, meditate on them throughout the week and see how they can be put into action in our lives. Lord, we want to be the kind of church that would best glorify and please you. Like the church of the Thessalonians, um, and like every church, we are not a perfect church, but we do want to please you. We do want to stick it out to the end. We do want to be a good pattern for other churches to see and follow. And as individuals, we want to be a good pattern for other Christians to follow. Help us to build each other up in our faith. Help us to take to heart Paul's encouraging words here. And Father, we thank you for your unfathomable grace to us in choosing us in Christ before the foundation of the world in sending your Son to die for us, in calling us to yourself effectually, in justifying us with the righteousness of Christ, and now taking us all the way to glory. We thank you that your grace has brought us safe thus far, and it will lead us home. Help us to be secure in that, and to work out our salvation with confidence. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.